5: Presented by AT&T.
4: Connecting changes everything. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
2: From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name
2: is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Paul, could we get just a, a little bit of a creepy music, something kind of ominous, maybe a little science-y? Perfect. Let's start with the stereotypical UFO story. A lone person or a couple is in a remote, rural part of the world, usually at night, and they see something strange in the sky. They may even experience a loss of time. Uh, Their electronics may function in an anomalous way. And days, weeks, months, or in some cases years later... They begin to recall additional details of that experience, of that lost time. And all too often, they have no hard proof of what they believe happened other than, of course, the certitude that something strange occurred.
1: This is very similar to the Barney and Betty Hill story that we covered very recently. That that thing that you just described, that's exactly it.
3: And, and, and wasn't that, in fact, kind of the sort of genesis of that trope? That, sorry, we're, you're talking about the, uh, the the subject of the uh, Strange Arrivals podcast really kind of created so many of these repeating images that we think of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in because, the U.S. at least.
1: Exactly, in the U.S. And because it, it originated in 1961,
2: or at least that's when the sighting was said to have occurred. Mm-hmm. So today's question is, what does it mean when not a single person or not a couple, but instead multiple people appear to report the same experience, not just the same emotive experience, not, you know, not 100 people saying I was scared, uh, but people saying I saw something, it looked like this, what happens when their descriptions match and their timeline matches up as well. We may be able to find the answer to this question in of all places far western rural Massachusetts. Here are the facts.
1: Yeah, um, unless you live somewhere in Massachusetts or in the northeast United States, you probably have never heard of Berkshire or Berkshire County, Massachusetts. It's on the far western side of the state and uh it is very very far from like a large city like Boston, it's, it's kind of, uh, in the, in the sticks, shall we say a bit, Mm -hmm. a bit, a bit of the sticks. Beautiful part of the sticks though, Mm -hmm. to my understanding. Oh yeah. It's, it's incredible there. And, uh, this area, Berkshire County, it's home to a number of small towns. Uh, one of the most important and prominent we're going to talk about today is Great Barrington.
2: And this is just, just a side note here. Uh, this is one of those names that is kind of like a, a little John name. Uh, I, I don't think you should ever have great in a city name, uh, because it's, it's like doing a, it, it's like, uh, doing improv and then having one of your character attributes be funny. You know what I mean? It sets expectations high. Uh, Barrington is a great place indeed, but it's not a great place in terms of population. It's pretty small. And that's, again, another trope that we see in a lot of these narratives, you know. Like this is uh, – this county or this – what was a county is is one of those places where um, – most people in town know each other or know of each other in these small towns. The protagonist of our story that we're just about to meet is uh, is an outsider. His family, uh, they're considered outsiders uh, because they don't have a long period of ancestry in these towns. And that's something that will be familiar to anybody from New England, that kind of um, – I would say, mild xenophobia.
3: Not only do they not have a long lineage of uh, of family history in this part of the country, I believe they had recently moved from New York City, so Mm -hmm. they were almost like fish-out-of-water type situations, you know, adapting to small-town life. Exactly, from Queens.
1: Yes, and and just to note here, Great Barrington has been around for a long time as as a town. And as of, just to give you a, a sense of how small it is, as of 2010... The Census Bureau reported that there were just over 7,000 people that lived in that town.
2: And like many small towns that are further away from metro areas, uh, this community doesn't seem set for explosive population growth or anything. It's been this way for a long time, since about the 1700s, when it was one of the, I believe, the original 14 counties in Massachusetts. Anyway, fast forward, hundreds of years. September 1st, 1969. There's a kid named Tom Reed riding in a car late at night. His mother is driving, his grandma is riding shotgun, and his other brother, Matt, is sitting in the back of the car with him. These kids are probably a little bit tired because it's late at night. They've just uh they're just heading home from their diner, which is called Village on the Green. Their vehicle, a station wagon, is crossing the Sheffield Bridge when something went wrong.
3: And the doubly fascinating thing about this story is that we have so many um, firsthand accounts of of what of, of these encounters. Uh, and this is the one from Reed himself, as he told it in a uh, recent episode of the the rebooted uh, Unsolved Mysteries that you can see on Netflix. Um, I was giving my brother a fireball, a little fireball candy. My grandmother turned around to see some lights coming up. What looked like from behind the bridge or trees. We all looked at it because it was kind of a self-contained glow. It rose up a little bit. It looked like it followed the dirt road, which I'm sure it probably didn't, but it appeared that way because we could see it through the trees. The light started to bleed through once we broke into a bit of a clearing we could see inside the car because it was dark. So the light was flooding inside the car. Um, and then that's when Reed remembers seeing uh, what he described as a white sphere. And his mother uh, also recalls and described it as a disc shaped object. Um, and they estimated it was about a hundred yards long. This thing that they were seeing mm-hmm.
2: at least a hundred mm-hmm. yards. Yep. And, uh, uh, just to sow a, a little bit of critical thinking, there we do have to note that these are not trained pilots or anything like that. Not saying we don't believe them uh, or they're not giving a sincere estimate, but it is it is difficult to estimate the true size of something when you don't know the distance uh, and you don't you don't know how far away you are. You don't know how high up it is. The car lights up with this. It's like the light envelops and consumes the car. And this doesn't feel like the typical light you see shining on Matt and all myself right now. There's something uh, energetic, almost palpable about it. And then the family recalls an eerie silence followed by a, a, a crescendoing susurrus, an eruption of wildlife noises, cicadas, crickets, so on. And right as that happens, according to Tom's recollection, they see an amber glow on both sides of the road and wake up three hours later. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Reed says, uh, we'll go back to Reed's words here. He says, that was the last thing we really remembered from the station wagon. It came to a stop off the right side of the road. Everything got really calm. It was like, he says, being in the middle of a hurricane. There was like a barometric change in pressure. It was just a dead silence. Uh, then there was an eruption of crickets and frogs. It got really loud, and that was it. Then, this is interesting, mm-hmm. then we remember bits and pieces of being in, like, a hangar. Other people were there. It was quite confusing. And When they, when they come to... Some things are different first off, they're like a mile away from where they blacked out, yeah, and I,
3: and I think it's worth really quickly there there are some other articles um about this with uh, with some more detail about this hangar um and he describes it as like like a Walmart situation or like you know like a massive sort of indoor football field almost with uh, fluorescent lights. And um, let me just go into his description is in this article on grunge.com. He describes this amber glow emerging on both sides of the road. uh, And then he was all of a sudden transported to this indoor hangar that was bigger than a football field. And he says, we encountered something. It was definitely not of this world. We had a black and white television uh, at time. And the imagery that we saw on this thing was unbelievable. There were lights and looked like fluorescent tubing inside this hangar. This hallway we had seen was circular with a Y configuration almost to control the flow of traffic. This one room had a bowed in wall that was rounded. This is not something that you would have seen in 1969 anywhere else. I have no idea where I was, but I know that what I saw was very different than anything I've seen today. 50 years later. Um, He talks about being uh, forced to lie on a table but jumping up and running away. Um, and he just kind of describes these little glimpses of these these rooms and then this facility, I guess. Um, and then
2: they were back in the car and two hours, they'd lost time. Yeah, they'd lost somewhere between two to three hours. More than two hours, how you often see it described, but if you round up, it's three. Important point, though, about that description, that's something that they remember later when they wake up in the car, According to their own accounts, when they wake up in the car, they don't know what's happened. They have just lost time. It is only later that they remember this experience in a hangar and later that other, well, no spoilers, other people start to corroborate. Uh, one big thing they notice, though, immediately before they rediscovered these memories of what, hap- what transpired during this missing time is they notice something is amiss with the arrangement of the people in the station wagon. Remember, picture in your head, folks, mom is driving, grandmother is in the shotgun seat, the kids are in the back seat. Now, when they come to in their vehicle, mom is in the shotgun seat, and grandmother is in the driver's seat. Is this a trick of memory? Possibly. 1969 was a long time ago. However... It doesn't make sense that she would be in the driver's seat because the grandmother didn't drive.
1: And, you know, speaking of tricks of memory Ben, there's another account that that Tom Reed has given where he describes the grandmother upon coming to, the grandmother being walking aimlessly outside of the vehicle and the mother being unconscious in the driver's seat. Or mm-hmm. or uh or the mother at least being unconscious somewhere in the car and the grandmother outside of the car, and then having to get the grandmother back in the car.
2: Yeah, I saw that one, and uh, it's it's tough. You know, it's, a, it's tough to get the right narrative because we've seen both accounts. The one I've seen most often is the description of the seat switching. Agreed. Uh, yeah, but you're right. You're right. The paths diverge there. So— The Reed family, these four people, are the folks most closely associated with this Berkshire's UFO incident or Barrington UFO incident, but they are not the only witnesses alleging they saw something up there in the sky. The local radio station, WSBS, back in 1969, September 1st, broadcast accounts of this event. From what what we know, based on... Uh, witness testimony, right, or witness stories and accounts, people were calling in to the local radio station, uh, and it must have been a great night for radio because uh, you get, you'll get one of these accounts, but then when you start getting two, three, four, five, a dozen, you, it gets more and more difficult to say, oh, someone's just hallucinating or something. And it's weird because for a long time, this incident – kind of languished in the public discourse. And it was something you would learn about if you talked with folks at MUFON, right? Or if you talked with your ufologist friends. Uh, until, uh, until quite recently, Unsolved Mysteries in a Netflix reboot covered this on an episode of their show.
3: Yeah, it's funny I think I recommended this to you a while back Ben there's a, a Amazon movie called the vast of night yeah um, and it's just wonderful first of all it's a it's a UFO story it takes place in around this time period like in the 60s and it has a broadcast component too. where there's like a switchboard operator that like hears this crazy frequency and calls into this radio station to kind of report it and then I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly the, the way it goes but no spoilers anyway but um, it has a very similar vibe and I think that was actually based on the kecksburg ufo incident which Ooh. happened in 1965 in pennsylvania but uh a lot of similarities thematically and i highly recommend everyone give that movie a shot it's really cool
1: i believe yes movie is great and i believe we have an episode on the kecksburg or at least we, we did do. a video okay yeah um that's a, another great account of something strange like this happening I just wanted to jump if you want to watch this it is on Netflix on Unsolved Mysteries it's the first season of the new reboot and it is titled Berkshire's UFO.
2: And in this when when you check this out uh you can hear interviews with Nancy Reed, uh, Jane Green, Tom Warner, Melanie Kirchdorfer, uh, each of whom are people claiming to have encountered something strange in the sky. You'll also hear extensive interview sections with Tom and Matt Reed. They we can maybe get into this uh, after the break, but they they describe what appears to be uh, craft a physical craft or a strange series of lights. And then some say they remember to some degree being abducted, being taken for a time by something and then returned to earth. The reason I'm using the air quotes on abducted uh, will become clear later. That's not me being a jerk. Uh, Some of the witnesses object to that term soon. More reports of bizarre activity arrive in nearby areas, including Sheffield, other small towns in the vicinity, even over the state line in Connecticut. So, what happened? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. We'll sort of tell you. We'll tell you what they said.
5: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip.
2: Here's where it gets crazy. So we started today's episode with a look at the um, sort of the quintessential UFO abduction trope, which we have traced back, you know, with the help of uh, Toby Ball to the uh, incident covered in his podcast, Strange Arrivals, what makes this case distinct? Uh, the, there are a couple of different characteristics. One is that there are multiple witnesses. According to the Barrington Historical Society, there are as many as forty witnesses, of uh, with varying descriptions and you know varying credibility. I think, uh, or maybe a better way to say it is, some are more hesitant to come forward than others. But we have examples of them. Uh, maybe we can explore some of those examples, some of the non reed examples.
1: Oh, that would be great. Um, I think we should start with Tom Warner. Uh, another Tom. Uh, by the way, Tom Reed is spelled T-H-O-M, like, as in Thomas. This uh, this Tom is spelled T-O-M. So uh, Tom Warner was a child at the time, a younger child, person at the time and he describes a pretty harrowing situation uh, maybe we can start like with the beginning and tell it a bit cinematically the way they did on unsolved mysteries just because it tends to lead to a little more drama here um, but he he was at a neighbor's house not too far from where he lived where he was doing some coloring. He was uh, a bit of a young artist, and he was at a neighbor's house coloring with crayons, he says. And uh, there were two sisters, the Shaw's, and uh, one of them is Jane, who we get to hear from in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And this is the account of what Tom says he experienced and what Jane seems to confirm, at least in part. It was Labor Day, like we said, September 1st, 1969. Tom was doing his thing, and he says he walked over to a window and experienced a voice, a disembodied voice
2: coming to him. Which he calls mental telepathy, which is a lot like saying ATM machine or Venn number. Yeah,
1: yeah, Yes. And that's a whole separate thing that we're going to have to just take here and put put over to the side. Right. Right. Because um, that
2: doesn't come up in a lot of other accounts. Mm-mm. But also also in his defense, he's speaking extemporaneously. Yes. And I do want to point out that this Unsolved Mysteries episode is heavily edited.
1: It is. It is. So we, we don't know as just the consumers of this episode what fully was said. Uh, but we do know that he experienced some kind of voice that told him to go home. And he was looking out the window. It said, go home. And obviously this scared him. It would probably freak any of us out experiencing something like that. And he told his friend Debbie Shaw, who's the sister of Jane Shaw, that he had to leave. So here's here's a quote from him. So I started bolting out the door. I could feel this energy that was inside me. That was like fear from the mental telepathy that I just experienced. And I was running full speed and I remember just feeling like I was flying at this point.
3: Yeah. And then he, he describes like running, but not going anywhere. Like, uh, it's almost, I mean, I think it's probably the most dismissive thing you could ever say to anybody that shares a story like this. Like, are you sure you weren't dreaming? But a lot of these details do feel nightmarish or like dreamlike the idea of like, running from an inescapable, larger-than-life force and not being able to get away. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But that's what he describes. He says— Like uh,
2: sleep paralysis. Almost. Just so.
3: And allegedly, Jane Shaw saw all of this go go down, but I mean, it's, it's interesting to me because she's describing seeing something that I, I don't know how you could really quantify. Uh, and he was, like, running right here in place just constantly for about five minutes. He was running in place. I so know. You know what I mean? Like yeah. What is that? Like literally running in place? Like jogging? <laughs> or or like, like a with, tractor beam? Right. Yeah. Or or like a treadmill, you know? Um that's interesting. I, I'm trying to picture
1: this. Well, I mean, just imagine it, the in the Unsolved Mysteries show they do a recre a recreation of this, and it's just someone uh levitating just above the ground but running furiously as though they you know don't realize that they're stuck in one
2: position right just for the uh, just for the visual image uh, to give you fellow conspiracy realists imagine in so many cartoons when a character begins to run really quickly and just for a second they're furiously running in the air but they're not going anywhere and then they zip off that's and that's of course that is not to be dismissive of what uh What Tom is saying here, because another thing that makes it distinct is we have a neighbor, a separate person, saying that they saw what he was experiencing. And um, he also said that he was receiving assurances from this voice in his head that uh, let him know kind of the same way that a veterinarian talks to uh, an animal when they're giving it, you know, a va- uh, like a, giving it a shot or checking it for fleas or something and said, okay, it'll be over in just a minute. That's a just great way
1: to describe it. I didn't think about it that way. That's that's a perfect way to describe it.
2: And Jade also has a, a quantitative aspect to her, to her description, right? Because she doesn't get hit with a beam. She doesn't hear any weird voice. She's just watching very strange stuff happen to her neighbor.
1: Oh yeah, exactly. So she's just an observer and she describes she talks about getting hit by like him being in a beam in in a light, some some kind of light surrounding him. And this is what uh this is what Tom says. He's he even says, "I was running but I wasn't moving. I turned and a UFO dropped right out of the sky in front of me. This beam that we're describing came on me." And uh, as the light was on him, he said that his arms got jerked back to the, to the back of him, basically. If you imagine at the shoulders, the arm, your arms being stretched out and then behind you as far as they can. And, you know, that to me just would be uncomfortable and almost as if there's a force being applied or something to the front of him so that his arms are going back or he's being pulled. Um and then he says my hands jerked back and it's like the air got sucked out of me and that is when Jane comes through and says she's describing this light that came around him and the next thing i know she says he disappeared and the onlookers which uh would be Jane Shaw, Debbie Shaw and assuming uh assumingly the parents of the Shaws if they were present we I don't I don't have that information um they could not find Tom he disappeared.
2: And uh, for about the span of seven minutes or so. Uh, that's that's the quantitative stuff we're talking about. Yeah. Like she puts a number on this, uh, and she says, you, you know, Tom says the next thing he knows, so he loses a little bit of time here, it sounds like. He is being laid down on the other side of his property, and he, he's— seems to say it was kind of gentle, like the way you would lay a baby down onto the ground. Uh, he, By the time he reappears, Jane says it's been seven minutes. This is happening, again, just to emphasize this, this is happening around the same time, or at least the same day, uh, that, that the Reed family is running into an incident on the Sheffield Bridge. But uh, Tom's not the only, Tom and Jane are not the only people involved. Uh, I think we mentioned a little bit earlier Melanie Kirchdorfer. Her story is pretty interesting too. It is not sponsored by Dairy Queen, uh, <laughs> but Dairy Queen does play a role in this story.
1: Yes. Melanie and her sister and mother and father were in, uh, the ve- they were in a vehicle and they were at Lake Mansfield, which is roughly two miles from the Great Barrington area. And they were enjoying ice cream. They were just going to hang out at that lake and get their Dairy Queen on. Um, And this is what Melanie says. My father backed into the parking lot and this brilliant bright aura came around. And uh, the father looked up and said, Holy sh!" And she describes how her father was excited by seeing this thing, and he wanted to just chase it. He wanted to find out what it was. And I think many of us listening can probably identify with that feeling of once we actually get a chance to see a light in the sky that we can't explain, we very much want to explore it as long as we can, you know, I guess until the fear creeps in but the the mother you know was was saying oh no it's probably just a shooting star but for some reason Melanie understood that it was not a shooting star and it was not something they should pursue and the father takes off chasing it with everybody in the vehicle and Melanie describes how she and her sister were shaking back there with their Dairy Queen cones and her sister doesn't doesn't seem to remember anything after that moment, but Melanie apparently experienced something similar to to Tom, at least somewhat similar to Tom, some kind of abduction experience.
2: Again, they don't really care for the A word or Tom doesn't.
3: yeah, he he describes like a lot of the accounts as like being overblown. And sort of uh, misrepresented, um, but he does describe being taken to a place, right. uh, and you know. Well, and so does
1: Melanie. Melanie, right. De- right. Melanie but I mean, describes that, that, being in a room.
3: That's what I'm saying, though. Like, is the term abduction inherently loaded? Like, uh, I guess that's up for debate, right? Or like yeah, well, some-
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like, we'll get to it. Is it a matter of semantics? Right? Is it splitting hairs? But just to just to sew up some of these non-read. Uh, non-read stories or experiences. Um, Melanie did, as you say, Matt, maintain that her sister didn't remember anything, but in her interviews, she says she remembered stuff. She just doesn't say whether, she doesn't say when she remembered it, which is very important, folks. Uh, But she says she remembers being on a ship uh, she remembers being in a room with people who were all young, specifically child age, right? And she would watch them disappear one by one. And then she says, this is interesting. That's something in common with the read account, uh, a more extreme version. She says she woke up and she was at that lake that Matt just mentioned by herself. And she had to walk home And uh, just for the record, at the time, Melanie Kirchdorfer is 14 years old. Let's loop Tom back in. Tom, who uh, just per his account disappeared in his yard and came back seven minutes later. Uh, Tom says that he also remembers a ship, right? He also remembers some sort of destination he was taken to. And what's more, he says he saw 14-year-old Melanie Kirchdorfer on the ship, uh, for her part, and I'm 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 trying not to be dismissive here, but for her part, she says, and this makes me think they're being sincere and honest. She says she doesn't remember seeing him in this place, right? But that when they met in person, IRL, as they say, she felt an instant connection to him. And the thing about an instant connection, I mean, I love Cloud Atlas as much as the next person. The thing about an instant connection is it cannot be quantified. An instant connection is not evidence.
1: It's not. And, and they didn't know each other at the time. Um, True. But, but that instant connection that Melody describes, uh, Tom describes remembering her eyes from that ship, from being on that ship and connecting somehow with her eyes and remembered that aspect of the whole situation. But just think about this. We've got three young people who describe fairly similar stories of experiencing light and then being taken somewhere and then being returned later on.
2: Well, I, I don't want to be the uh, Apostle Jostler or whatever here. <laughs> but but the, the thing is, um, is it not more accurate for us to say what we have are three separate people who are recalling events that occurred when they were children in 1969?
1: I think both I think both are true. They're recalling events that happened in 1969, but they're also recalling events that they believe are true. It feels like.
2: Right, right. But I'm saying, like, did they uh, – we don't find accounts of them as children. Say There's this. no
1: journal entry – from that right. day that was written down the day of or immediately after I, right. agreed. I would, I would a hundred percent agree to that. So let's take those young people's experiences, whatever they were or remembrances of experiences and put them to the side for a moment and jump to a totally different account. One that was, is told by Jane green, another witness who experienced something while she was on the highway with a friend traveling, I think she was north of Great Barrington, traveling south towards the town, and she saw something on the highway.
3: There's a lot of Toms and Janes in this story. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, a, it's, a it's Massachusetts.
2: It's, yeah. Oh, it's a, that's a good point. That's I a did a—I uh, I like how you said that with the air of, it's Chinatown, Jack. <laughs> it's, uh,
3: as Massachusetts, baby. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so, oh gosh, the emails— I feel a disturbance in the correspondence force, but um, there's there's a really interesting uh, interesting phenomenon that is probably more suited to brain stuff. I can't remember if I did it on there about the uh, rise and fall generationally of uh, popularity of certain names, and it is cyclical. Uh, so, ah, a story for another day. Wait, anyway, on. yes, Thomas and T-
1: Thomas and Matthew in a, in a in a good Catholic place like Massachusetts. Come on. Mm-hmm. they're, they're going to be everywhere.
2: They're going to be, uh, it's, it's a common name, right? Uh, so Jane green different from Jane Shaw. It's just after dark, right? In the sky, the sun has westered, uh, which is where we never get to use. And Jane is with her friend in a vehicle. They're traveling from Stockbridge to great Barrington, Stockbridge being another town in Massachusetts. Uh, Jane sees a bunch of lights ahead, and she is, to be absolutely fair, in multiple portrayals, she seems to be the most skeptical of our firsthand witnesses. Because when when she sees a bunch of lights ahead, she makes the assumption that a lot of us would make, which is cops, or a car (laughs) accident, or a fire, you know what I mean? That's where you see a lot of roadside lights. Maybe construction.
1: But I like the way you said that. It was like cops. <laughs> like, oh no, slow down. That's, oh, it's oh, true. that's what my brain would do.
2: <laughs> oh, come on. Like if you're this now, we have LEOs in the uh, in the audience today. Um Law enforcement officers. Right. Yeah, sorry, law enforcement officers. And uh, one thing I think a lot of non, like a lot of civilians, a lot of non-LEOs encounter, when you when you see a police car with sirens on, your first assumption, right, is to check to make sure that it's not you. Like, how <laughs> yeah. fast am I going? My window's down. And that doesn't mean everybody's automatically a criminal. It's just a gut reaction that we're programmed to have. And so she thinks... um, she thinks, okay, there's something happening down the road, right? And she doesn't think aliens or anything like that. Uh, but the lights are so bright that she has to pull over. She can't safely drive. And other cars are on the road, which is different from a lot of, again, stereotypical UFO stories. That a car in front of her pulls over too. And then uh, Jane and her friend exit the vehicle to see what's going on because we all have that kind of, Vicarious morbidity with car accidents. Yeah, that's r- the it,
3: is what they call right, it, right? <laughs> right.
2: That's the reason that. Uh, that's the reason that traffic jams follow car accidents. It's not because the road is impaired. It's because everybody has this sort of sick inclination to slow down and watch.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, for sure we all have that. Um, hmm. I want to. I want to look at one detail here, just before we move forward. I think we've all had this experience where you're driving either pretty early in the morning or as dusk is occurring or just as the sun is setting where the sun is at an angle and you're driving on a road that's probably east or or west, definitely, where the sun just appears to be directly in your field of view. It sucks. (laughs) In Atlanta, there are several streets where it happens to me a lot. And I'm just – this is the only thing I can imagine where there's so much – bright light entering the windshield that you are unable to continue driving or you have to drive so slowly and attempt to cover in some way to continue on safely it happens to me on the interstate sometimes when traffic is crazy
3: and i like i, I don't know what to do i'm like do i pull over like uh, it's, it's, it's not going to go away <laughs> i better just power through it or do i wait for the, the position of the sun to move i mean it is
1: you're right it's debilitating and it's very scary well just imagine that amount of light or the equivalent of that amount of light occurring at night yeah. and still being in front of your vehicle where you can't you can't continue on you feel like you can't continue on um, and we don't have any information about uh, Jane Green's eyesight right or like well, whether or not she can drive with or without corrective lenses or how light may affect her vision, because it does affect uh, our vision differently, each of us individually at night. Um, but still, just trying to imagine that, um, and then and then imagining that there is that other person or vehicle full of people in front of her that experienced the same thing. That's very very important here. And we have we actually have a quote from Jane Green from that unsolved mysteries episode. This huge object floated right there, and I couldn't see the end of it from the right or
3: from the left. It was immense. And most of all, there was no noise. That, cha- that tracks, right? With the other account, the idea of this like calm before, th- or like being in the eye of the hurricane or whatever, um, where everything just takes on this eerie calm. Um, back to the quote there was no motor, there was nothing. It was just there. And these lights were coming, and I just looked at it. And within a period of seconds, it lifted up, went this way, lifted up again, and went over the mountain.
1: And she's just, she's using her hands to describe mm-hmm. in that quote right. um, that it just, it, it went. It went vertically, then horizontally for a bit, then vertically again. I wanted, I want to hear the account of the person who was driving in front of Jane Green and her friend, because if there is if that person if that person is a witness and has a very similar story, then my goodness, um, I don't know. I it would make me believe it a whole lot more if it wasn't for Jane Green's statements about what you said, Ben. Her at least self identification as a non believer at the time.
2: Yeah. Going back to uh, my earlier point about some witnesses being more reticent to retrace their stories or to go on those sorts of programs like Unsolved Mysteries, we don't know who else saw something and decided not to report it if those people were there. And to your point, Matt, uh, what's interesting about Jane is she does describe herself as a, a skeptic. Flying saucers are baloney. Uh, A lot of people say – like a lot of people in this area of the country seem to say baloney pretty frequently. Mm. It's like the radio-friendly version of BS. Uh, So anyhow, this has changed her mind. This is something she can't explain. She tells her spouse – and he says, "You know, go go tell the radio station WSPS." Uh, so she finds a guy named Tom Ray. He's the director of the radio station at the time in 1969. She tells him. He starts to laugh and says, "Okay, wow, well, you've been drinking, huh? Mm-hmm. You guys have been tying one on. Uh, you got space drunk, and uh, <laughs> which is a word we just made up." But, uh, but so. So he says, you know, well, okay, calm down. It's probably swamp gas, which is, of course. Wait, what? The UFO, the, yeah, the UFO version of it's probably the wind. Yeah. Shh. It and,
0: was all uh, a
2: dream. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I used to read Word Up magazine and uh, – sorry, that's for the – Hip hop fans. But uh but she she sticks to her guns. We don't know what the other people in those cars may have seen. And if the lights were so bright such that someone could not drive, then other people would have noticed it even if they were in their homes near the road. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's right. And and this is really important that she went to the radio station to tell someone, no matter what uh the reaction was, she was You know, there should be an account of that. There should be records uh, that we can look at. And what we're going to do after a word from our sponsor is just look at what evidence do we have outside of witness statements from people who said they saw something.
5: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
4: Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
2: And we're back. So that was our, that was all the first thing That sets this incident apart from many other alleged UFO sightings, multiple witnesses, many, as many as 40. We'll tell you where we got that number in a moment. But uh, I want to go to your point, Matt, about the radio station, because there are numerous accounts, contemporaneous accounts, which means accounts that occur at the same time as this event. There are numerous contemporaneous accounts of people calling that local radio station on the same night to report something wonky. Jane Green went to the director because she was familiar with the guy, but other people were just calling in. Unfortunately, no audio recordings of those calls exist today. Uh, And it also seems that some of these witnesses, uh, we explored four just there, uh, some of those 40 witnesses came forward later after hearing about reports from Reed or someone else. Additionally, if you look at local law enforcement, Their records show this was a quiet night even for a quiet town. There are two incidents on the books for that evening. One is good news. There was a woman who was reported missing, and she was later found that day, September first, 1969, in Stockbridge. Uh, And two, there was a guy who called the cops to complain about uh, mysterious people throwing beer cans and trash in his yard. So he's calling about a a dumpster problem about littering with those two reports. You would think that a massive object in the sky displaying bright lights, altering the behavior of wildlife, levitating people and so on would also be something that local law enforcement wrote down in their log of the evening if they took it seriously.
1: But they do have a report of a woman who went missing and then was found just like those kids. Like Tom went missing for about seven minutes and then he came back.
2: Very good. I don't good know. Point. Very good point. Another another distinction uh that often gets reported in this case as a um as a way of lending credibility to the witnesses or experiencers, as they're often called, is this Tom Reed, who's kind of our protagonist in this story, he took a polygraph test and he passed it. What we mean when we say passed it is that the person administering the polygraph test felt that he was giving truthful answers to those questions. It doesn't prove that he saw stuff, but it proves that he believes it. Like, it proves he's not lying. Unless, of course, he is gaming the polygraph test because it is far from a solid diagnostic tool. It's kind of ridiculous that it's still used as often as it is.
1: It's funny how the whole polygraph test concept really is just a series of traps um, Mm -hmm. to try and get somebody to confess to something uh, by making them think that you know that they're lying, including the, the new chair mechanisms because like the clenching of the butt and tightening of the kegle, yeah. There's all <laughs> there's all kinds of ways to try and beat this thing, and then all new ways to try and beat the beating of it. It's a uh, it's a fascinating thing.
2: So hmm. say I'll take my polygraph but I'll only do it standing. So you can get away <laughs> so you can get away with the thumb tack in your shoe and and flexing your yeah. flexing your kegs. Um <laughs> Oh, flexing the kegs, <laughs> flexing the old, the, kegs. the
3: old holding in the people, jostling the apostles, and flexing the kegs. That's the takeaway. Oh uh, man, but it, it, like it's we've talked about the fallibility of uh, polygraphs a lot, like over the years on the show, because it is you know like it's not even fully admissible, right? Like in, in a courtroom situation, or it, it's considered kind of a little bit it, dubious, right?
2: Yeah, it really shouldn't be, um, because. It's it, – it, because it's far from foolproof, right? And there are still organizations, of course, that require as part of a background investigation the administration of a polygraph test. But that, I would argue, is sort of a a legacy thing or it's a framework for people who are very proficient interrogators to use. Like the the people – In a lot of uh, investigations or background checks, the people who are using a polygraph test are usually going to be good enough at discerning folks' true intentions, motivations, and beliefs that they probably don't need a neat little gadget on the side. They can probably just cold read the crap out of you, but, you know, it makes it official. There are needles and little suction cups and stuff.
1: correct me if I'm wrong. Was it an episode of The Wire where they do a thing with a copier... They get a guy over by the think copier, right. and they like convince him that it's a lie detector, and they make copies of different things. In
2: <laughs> I think you're right. That mm. might be the wire. Um, yeah.
1: Psychological influence is really what it is.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like an e-meter. Uh, But the um, – shots fired, I guess. <laughs> but uh, look, I – here, there are very important things. This is running a little long, but there are very important things we have to clarify when we ask what may or may not have happened. First, the Reed brothers claim they have seen UFOs before this time, and it's something that the Unsolved Mysteries episode in particular does not cover. Uh, in fact, they believe this was the third time they had seen a UFO. They said they had four encounters total one in 1966, one in 1967 the famous 1969 incident with mother and grandmother, and then a fourth experience by Matt Reed alone in 2009 in Indiana. Uh, But Noel, you raised an interesting point that off air, that the story of the Reed family and UFOs may start before 1966.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, The... The Reed family has sort of a history of UFO sightings. Back in 1954, uh, Nancy and Howard, who were the the, the parents of, of the Reed kids, um, had an experience of their own. Uh, Nancy was 15, and she and her mother and her brother and her brother's girlfriend had rented a cabin uh, at a place called Moosehead Lake in Massachusetts. And uh, they awoke in the middle of the night to a a streaming light situation. Um, And they claim to have seen squat pudgy figures standing in the room, watching them in silence. Um, And she, uh, this really does sound like a sleep paralysis situation. Nancy claims that she was unable to move, uh, but could feel her body moving as though it was being moved by some force Uh, some, some, some force was moving her legs. Um, and then all of this kind of faded when the sun came up. Um, but she felt nauseous afterwards and, you know, uh, and then the, the sons, um, had an, an experience like, I think five or six years before the most famous one in the car where they saw these like orbs of light come into their bedroom. Um, It's just interesting, like, you know, we've talked about the fallibility of memory and, you know, the idea of not implanting yourself with memories or whatever. But that's certainly something that we know can happen. But it's interesting that this is like a generational thing within this family. Like, does that mean it's more uh, credible or does it mean it's less? Like, is this something that maybe mom told the kids about growing up and it was just part of their world and it was like something they wanted to be a part of and you know, I don't know.
1: Well, for the tr- true believers in the audience, it may mean that this family is targeted for one reason or another because of their DNA or for some other reason that we just don't know. But for the more skeptical, it would mean a completely different thing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. That's what I was saying off air before we started rolling on this. That's the thing that gets me. There's a Rorschach ink blot. To this kind of thing, and I'm glad that you guys are bringing this up on air, and it didn't it didn't just die in our in our behind the scenes conversations because uh, we're going to see that as a common thread, and we already have. I would argue, uh, psychologists may say perhaps the mother was knowingly or unknowingly manipulating people, but I I also believe. Um, I can't remember if I said this before we started rolling, but I also believe that it's. Um, it's woefully unhelpful to try and ascribe intention or motivation to these folks without studying them right like if you haven't met uh if you haven't met Nancy Reed then you really it, it's unfair to her and to her family to say that she's tilting the scale but it's also unfair to ourselves not to acknowledge that is a possibility um so again yeah it's it's kind of an eye of the beholder thing the the second part here is that – the second clarification is that Tom Reed in particular feels his story has been massively sensationalized and perhaps his experience has therefore been exploited or cheapened. He describes a pretty shady editing process that's familiar to any of us uh, who have worked at all in the world of reality television or checked out our episode on that, maybe Frankenbiting – Maybe he says something completely, you know, completely valid and sincere, then it's taken out of context, and they've got some really, like, weekly world news-esque VO bookending it, you know? Uh, He particularly—like, he's appeared on a number of different shows. He's been on something called Paranormal Paparazzi, which I haven't seen, uh, Alien Mysteries, and— he says that these producers these companies promised to take his story seriously aka treat it with respect uh, before they went on air and they exaggerated everything and one of those one of those big things that he objected to specifically was terminology the use of the word abductions he says he never uses that word and he, he makes a good point because he feels it Unfairly characterizes his family. Uh, he says, "You know, we're credible in our accounts. We're not a bunch of raving lunatics. Lunatics, by the way, etymologically is interesting. It means walk, <laughs> taking long walks under the moon, right? Basically, oh, yeah. delicious.
3: Or, 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 well, the idea of the moon like being a source of madness or something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. No, it, it, what we were kind of alluding to a little earlier, like, is this just a, a, an issue of semantics? Um, but it's true." when you're when you're doing sort of a loaded uh type ufo sort of like uh sensationalized story yeah you're gonna throw around terms like abduction and grays and all of that kind of stuff and it doesn't necessarily mean the words themselves are loaded but it's all about like the context and the way the story's portrayed and i think that's what he took issue with was the mm-hmm. editing and like the way it was sort of characterized but you're on a show called UFO Paparazzi. I mean, what do you think is going to happen?
2: That's the problem, yeah. I mean, it's somewhere between incredibly dismissive and disrespectful. You know what I mean? Uh, like adding in some crazy Moog sound effects or something. Uh, it cheapens it. But anyway. Hey, don't malign the Moog, my friend. Don't. Uh, uh, no, don't I'm malign. just saying it's being misused in that <laughs> I, context. I, I agree. And I, I was telling you,
3: you guys off air, I listened to a podcast uh, called Lights Out that, that discussed this story. And most of it was it was well done, um, and I, I was able to check out you know most of the stories, and they they tied to sources that I read and that we've discussed. But there was this whole account of like these alien beings in the Walmart, you know, hanger situation (laughs) uh, with like almond shaped heads and like limbs like bamboo and like mushroom colored Mm. skin. And I didn't find accounts of that anywhere. Like it certainly, I don't believe was anything that, that Reed uh, spoke of. So that felt like some real styling Uh, and Hey, creators of that show uh if if you hear this I, I'd love to to hear your sources because it certainly wasn't cited, and I googled the hell out of it and couldn't find any mention of these things.
2: Style it on them yeah the the idea of credibility and legitimacy is 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 crucial here it's It's fundamentally important because this is a controversial account of an experience right there is uh, there is good news for the true believers. It's, it's a relatively small piece of good news, but it gives uh, an air of legitimacy. In 2015, the, uh, the story hit a milestone. The local historical society, the Great Barrington Historical Society, decided they would recognize this incident as a, quote, official historical event. The director of the society, one Debbie Opperman, said – "Quote: It's a significantly historic event because – check this part out – because it's an event that was important to many people in South County at the time, which is a re- kind of a replacement for that Berkshire County area. So they're not saying we believe aliens are real. They're saying in the history of – of our community, this is a big event because a lot of people were involved. You know what I mean? Yeah,
3: but then the the plaque reads in a way that surely seems to offer some belief, you know, or legitimacy to to the accounts,
1: right? But it's also over the top. I'll just read what it says. The plaque reads, The official induction of our nation's first off-world UFO incident. Off world slash UFO. Uh, off yeah, world slash, yeah. so, I mean,
3: clearly sort of meant to be like a tourist draw, perhaps, right? Maybe. Like a
1: roadside oddity. And um, it's not know. like they'd never heard of the Roswell crash or oh, you that's know, a good some point. of the other things like some of these events became big news even is if it, they is
2: barney w- hill mm-hmm. <laughs> is this
3: sort of like a best cup of coffee in town situation you know it's like <laughs> right. can, you, can you really quantify something that's that objective uh, or subjective rather
2: yeah what was that old uncle tupelo joke like the uh the fourth best country band in Missouri or something, or in St. Louis or <laughs> something like that. I can't remember. But I like
3: it. But this was, you know, this wasn't this wasn't met with uh, universal excitement uh, from the community, right? Um, it, it was was definitely controversial, and folks, you know, tagged it up, vandalized it, um, and then recently, uh, last year uh, in June on June the fourth, it was removed. And I've seen uh, Reed Commenting on this, and he actually petitioned the city to not do that because he 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 found it to be uh, legitimizing his story um, and his family's legacy or whatever, right? Uh, to 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 give it some historical heft, um, but it does feel to me a little more like a bit of an opportunistic move on the city's part.
2: Huh? Yeah, it's so their official reasoning, and some of this is probably continuing through courts. It's been slowed because of the pandemic. Their official reasoning is that uh, it was. It's a property dispute. Like, where can the monument be legally located? We should also say Tom Reed is one of those private supporters who raised money to build this obelisk. It's an obelisk, uh, of course. It's I like an those kind of things. Yeah, I think if I were a stranger driving through this town for the first time, um, I would yeah. stop and look at that. You know, totally, a
1: hundred percent. Think of the Mothman statue. Come on,
2: God, that guy. Is th- <laughs> Thick. Do you think this <laughs> obelisk has
1: a six-pack? Yeah. Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> For sure. It's some, some clappers on the back end. Oh my that was like gracious. the as yes. part of that sculpture. It made me feel things <laughs> that I'd never felt before.
1: You guys, let's, let's really quickly, I know we're running on time here. Let's get into the reasons that this feels a little weird. We've got all these witnesses, but we don't have freaking proof. Where's is, where is the proof of this occurring? Where are the photographs? Where where are the radio reports? Mm-hmm. Where is the local newspaper writing about this? Why? Let's just talk about what we've got in that realm.
2: Yeah, yeah. This leads to like this is um, this is what I was talking kind of talking about uh, before when I aired too? Like the 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 Rorschach Rorschach nature of it. You know what I mean? The tea leaf reading here because. It introduces us to a standing conspiracy theory. One of the most intriguing concepts about this incident hinges on the idea that government agents for one reason or another may have actively conspired to cover up reports of this or cover up hard evidence. Uh, and to your point, Matt, there are key, key pieces of hard evidence that we would reasonably expect to find that are missing. For instance, there is no record of that radio broadcast from the evening of September first, nineteen 1969. Why? Well, could it be because they didn't take it seriously, didn't decide to record it for posterity? Could it be because it was just their SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, to not keep audio copies of every single program they did every single night back in 1969? Probably yes. And also, yes.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, because, you know, it's not like they had digital recording where recording space is unlimited and you can just record things constantly would have had to been recorded on tape, like on reel to reel. And those take up space. There's no reasonable expectation that a radio station in the 60s like that would have recorded everything uh, unless it was a special broadcast, you know, some kind of like christmas thing or who knows or like uh, something noteworthy enough for the dj uh, or their anchor to like flip on a tape though i i would argue that this does fall into that category (laughs) even if it's only in the oddities kind of camp i would certainly be like oh let's roll the tape on this we can use this for some
1: crazy bloopers you know one day
2: this comes up in the halloween clip show right obviously
1: does always record always record and let's jump over to the newspapers because there was A local historian from Berkshire County, Gary uh, LeVille, Leville? he he was combing through archives at the local newspapers for at least a month, and he was unable to find anything in that time period around September 1st, both before and after that mentioned any sightings from any locals. Um, And again, is that because the paper didn't think it was credible? It appears that that at least was true in a couple cases um, where the paper didn't want to commit it to writing because they didn't want the town to be this weird place where UFOs happen or where delusional people think they see UFOs, depending how you feel about it.
2: Yeah. And in both of those cases, that's an editorial choice, right? It's completely legal for them to do that. However, there's a third case uh, when we when we get to the matter of law enforcement those organizations are required to document stuff legally. So there's a guy named Santi Gulata. He was the Sheffield chief of police in 1969 when this occurred. And according to his son, Eddie, in later interviews, uh, Gulata did actually receive phone calls about some sort of mysterious object in the sky, but he didn't believe the reports because, you know, if you're running – if you're running an open phone line, you you probably get a lot of crazy calls. 1-833-STDWYTK. Let us yes. know.
1: But yeah. we do have that account of there not being anything on the books whatsoever. Uh, right. on that day besides the missing woman that I still contend may have something to do with this.
2: <laughs> one one there's one big elephant in the Zoom call, though, uh, and it's this. There's a Socio political kind of context that I, in which this occurs, and it's not isolated from it. We're in the middle of a cold war, right? Also, this is just months after the first official moon landing right? Space is very much on everybody's mind, and it's certain that the alphabet soup is going to keep tabs on any unusual activity. The The world militaries, forget just the U.S. military, if you hear about a strange object in the sky, your first thought is going to maybe not be aliens, but it's going to be like, is this just a weather balloon, or did the other guys, the whoosh, whoosh, bad guys, build something that we don't have? So, I like, we know there were extensive investigations.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Here, Here's the other part of that. Let's say you're an advanced civilization keeping light tabs on, you know, um, a group of semi-intelligent animals that can drive cars and fly airplanes. And they can shoot things up into the atmosphere a bit, but they can't really do much else besides that. And all of a sudden, you notice that a ship has made its way all the way to the lunar surface of the moon, of that planet. Maybe you'd start doing a little more closer research right after closer monitoring.
2: Just say yeah, yeah, let's look. yeah, let's look at this. Let's see what they're up to, right? I get it. Uh, so you go, so
1: you go to Great Barrington, Massachusetts. <laughs>
2: Right, right, uh, because you had earlier abducted someone from that uh, region, and now you want to see what their, how your genetic experiments have in, affected their offspring, etc. You can Mad Lib anything into that. I mean, that's the
3: most compelling kind of more out there uh, way of looking at this. I love the multi, the generational idea. Of like the parents being, you know, uh, targeted in some way, and their like lineage or whatever. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it's it's a thing, but it's certainly an interesting thing to think about.
2: Well, then the other question is, of course, the the bet. I want to put this very diplomatically. This is not my personal belief, but it is an understandable belief. On the part of some skeptics to say there's something inherently narcissistic about the idea that out of billions of people on the planet who are all, uh, you know, physiologically, we're all pretty much the iterations on a theme or variations on a theme. There's something kind of narcissistic about saying, well, they singled me out multiple times and I therefore am special for that reason. Uh and it's like a you know like paranoia is ultimately a narcissistic uh flavor of of thought or ideation. I don't agree with that, but I see where people are coming from with that. In my opinion, I don't think there there's anyone who's like purposefully lying to folks for attention. And I think, you know, to say that is the case without solid proof become comes very close to victim blaming, which it, which would be irresponsible of us at this point. Uh, Matt, you had a quote from Jane Green that you quite liked in the Unsolved Mysteries episode.
1: Oh, yes, I do. And you'll have to forgive us, Unsolved Mysteries. We very much enjoyed your, your episode. And I'm pulling another direct quote from your program. Yeah, I. And I'm doing it because Jane Green just is highly convincing to me personally in her reasoning uh, behind telling this story, behind wanting you to hear her story. So I'm just going to read it. I just wish that everyone that sees this, talking about the Unsolved Mysteries episode, really would open their minds. Because I know the people that are being interviewed are people just like everyone out there that probably at one time didn't believe doubted. And when this happens, there is no doubt. I have no reason to make anything up. I'm 85 years old, and this is not something that I expected to do or ever to talk about. It's real. It's for real. People have got to understand that.
2: And this shares a a common thread with Tom Reed's earlier statement Uh, for the record. I want to point out that while it's true, he and others have made multiple appearances on various, uh, I will call them paranormal popcorn shows just cause I like the alliteration. Not trying to start a, a, not trying to get any beef points, uh, but just because they've made appearances on these shows uh, doesn't mean that they're somehow con artists. You know, we have oh. to listen to people clearly and objectively. It, it's safe to say that these events, their participation in these shows or other media outlets haven't made them wealthy. They're not milking this as some sort of extraterrestrial cash cow. They simp- in fact, they simply told their story once and have stuck with it. Throughout multiple decades, it is safe to say at the very least that they believe this story is true. So what about you, conspiracy realist? What are your thoughts? We would love to hear them. You can feel free to abduct us in your UFO and, and give us the firsthand scoop. If you were involved with this, uh, and if not, uh, if you don't happen to have a running UFO now, you can always find us on the internet.
3: You sure can. We are on all the usual spots, the social medias, conspiracy stuff, or conspiracy stuff show on Instagram. Um, you can join our Facebook group, which we love dearly. Uh, that is called Here's Where It Gets Crazy on Facebook. You just name a name of any of the names involved in the show. Super producer Paul, Mission Control Deccant, Doc Holiday. Noel, Matt, Ben, code name Scully. Doc Holiday. Excuse me, excuse me. Code if you don't put the code name colon Doc Holiday, you're out. No, I'm kidding. We're pretty forgiving. Uh, make Ben laugh. Um, let us know that you're a human person who's aware of the show and you are in for all the good memes and discussions and uh, tomfoolery that goes on in that group.
1: And if you're not into social media, you should give us a call. Our number is one one eight three three S T D W Y T K. Huge shout out to Jen. Jen, you know who you are. You gave us a call and you told us about this topic. Weirdly enough, we are behind back to, I think, early October uh, in our voicemails, and we're getting through it right now. But I watched this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, then checked out some, uh, some voicemails and heard you tell us about this episode. So it just... Worlds came together. Thank you so much, Jen. I left. I would have left you a message, but I think your voicemail box is full. Uh, so like Jen, give us a call. Tell us what you think. And uh, yeah, just let us know if we can use your name and likeness on the show. If you don't want to do that, there's always the best way to get in contact with us. Send us a good old-fashioned
2: email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com.
5: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: Attention, true crime enthusiast! Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for
3: CBD relief.